Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and want to keep safe, but they also pick one thing they'd rather forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. And that's what we talk about. My guest in this episode is the Irish stand-up comedian Neil Delamere. Neil has been described as a wryly brilliant live performer by the Sunday Times. He's best known for quick-witted appearances on myriad panel shows and his hilarious live stand-up tours. Neil is a regular contributor for BBC Radio 4 on the News Quiz, The Now Show and The Unbelievable Truth, as well as fighting talk on BBC Radio 5 Live. He's one of the top acts working in the Irish comedy scene today, having presented Neil Delamere's Just for Laughs, Eureka, The Big Bang Query and Republic of Telly for RTE. Neil has also appeared on Richard Osman's House of Games, Celebrity Chase, Countdown, Celebrity Mastermind and The Michael McIntyre Show on the BBC, as well as The World Stands Up and Live at the Comedy Store on Comedy Central. He's been a permanent panellist on BBC Northern Ireland's The Blame Game since the show's inception. In addition to writing and presenting award-winning TV documentaries on The Vikings and St. Patrick, Neil recently starred in the BBC mockumentary Soft Border Patrol, with his sketches subsequently garnering in excess of three million views online. He's performed all over the world, including at the Edinburgh, Montreal and Melbourne festivals, where his shows have amassed multiple five-star reviews. So that's Neil Delamere. Impressive, isn't it? And I hope you enjoy listening to Neil as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Now I can guarantee you one thing from this episode. It'll make you laugh. Have fun. 
So lovely to have you on the podcast, but uh, you do your own podcast, don't you? I do, yeah. It's a, it's a, a chance for me to completely indulge my uh, myself and be deliberately niche. Myself and my, my friend, he's called Dave Moore. He does a very big show over here um, mm. in Ireland. It's one of the biggest kind of commercial radio shows. And when we talk to each other, we don't normally, we don't talk like normal human beings. We we tell each other facts. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, did you know that Ireland's first Olympic medal after we became independent was won by a painter? And our, Jack B. Yates, by the way, it's uh, W.B. Yates' brother. Because, right. yeah, 1924, because painting was part of the Olympics. Anyway, most anyway. people look at me and go, shut up, you idiot. And Dave goes, I'll see your fact and I'll raise that fact. So we, we tell each other facts and then we get people in the second half who are an actual experts to back us up. So we would have, like Susie Dent was on recently and she was explaining why we speak English the way we speak English mm-hmm. and giving us the definition of words. And we've had a, a professor of anthropology talk about the Moswa people who live in China, in a small area in China, who live in a matrilineal society where all the power and is is it's passed down the the mam's line and you take your mother's surname and there isn't really a form of institutionalized marriage traditionally and stuff so we just try and do stuff that's interests us it's called why would you tell me that and that's that's all it is it's an excuse to indulge yourself same as your podcast you want to talk to people who you might find interesting and it's, yeah. it's indulgent in a way isn't it it is indulgent it's very self-indulgent but you should come uh, if you're ever in Tunbridge Wells you should come out with me on a Tuesday night that's exactly what me and my mates do we sit there and go oh I don't know if you know this this is interesting oh. go on mm. give us one okay I like the shift of the N so you have uh, an apron you like this one, don't you? <laughs> Dave, yeah. d- Dave did it this week on the show. There you are. I love that fact. Go on, and you explain to your listeners then. Well, just that it used to be because it's it goes around your neck, so your nape. It was called a napron. And over time, that N has moved and become an apron. And uh, it's the same as orange, isn't it? Yeah, norange. It was a norange, yeah. From the Spanish. You have to come on our podcast now and give us <laughs> random facts about No, stuff. no, no. No, you really want to get my wife on, not me. Because <laughs> not only did she work for QI, but she's a doctor of science. So uh, she's rather an expert on yeah. uh, T-cells and blood. Ooh, okay. Mm. Which we all thought uh, we didn't know anything about. And then a global pandemic hits. And then suddenly we're absolute <laughs> experts on antibody response and T-cells. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, she was the only person who ever knew what she was talking about when she brought it up until that time. And to, yeah, we all became self-appointed experts. No, I listened to uh, your Joe Wilkinson episode fairly recently and you mentioned that uh, your wife was a doctor of science. And mm. um, I have to say, uh, I really enjoyed that particular episode. He picked one thing that I was going to pick as well, though. Oh, really? Uh, which was his five-a-side game on uh, on one of his nights. I uh. absolutely adore my five-a-side game, I have to say. What I like about it, apart from the fact that, you know, you're just getting out and running, is, is the complete difference between... My wife joined a, a, a weights kind of exercise class and they all became friends instantly and they all text each other and became a WhatsApp group. I have been playing football for about 20 years with these lads. I don't know their surnames, Mike. There's, 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 there's lads I, I've never met before. And there's no, like, anything beyond. Basically, there's a text sent out, who is available for football? I am available. I am available. I am available, but Brendan is dead. Oh, no, Brendan is dead. We'll only have nine. Can we put Brendan in goal? How stiff is he? Will the rigor set in? Can we just 
prop him there. Oh no, so sad Brennan is dead because he had the ball and the bibs. I mean, there's no level beyond... No, that is very true. That's a very male thing, isn't it? Yeah. Particularly, Brendan's dead. Oh no, does anybody else yeah, go yeah, yeah. Oh, Brendan had all the gear and the key to the hall. That's the, the only level of, uh, of interaction we have. I quite like that surface level in some ways. As long as you have other people in your life that it goes a little bit deeper and you can tell them your problems. But yeah. it, it's, it's a remarkable difference between the two. But I have, don't worry, selected four other things that hopefully you'll be interested in. Okay, lovely. Well, uh, let's find out what they are. Okay, um, I think the first one, I'm going to pick a sport, if I can pick a sport. Mm-hmm. I'll, even pick, I'll even pick a season, if you would like. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the sport of hurling, which is the fastest field game in the world. Yes. And it's a, it's a Gaelic sport, 15 aside. And my county, um, I'm going to pick the 1998 season of the hurling championship. <laughs> That's how specific this is going to get. My county is County Offaly. It's the last time we won the All-Ireland. And you could pick everybody from this county and put them in Croke Park or in Wembley Stadium and still have several thousand seats left over. <laughs> yes. So we're at that level of, of, of a small county, 32 yeah. counties in Ireland. And... Um, I, the reason I like Gaelic sports, apart from the fact that I love this particular sport because it's so good and there's, you know, they don't wear protection in terms of padding. I mean, they wear a helmet and stuff like this. So there's a genuine physical bravery involved in it. Mm. Um, I like it because it's still amateur. So it's very strange to be sitting with 80,000 people watching your butcher play cornerback or watching <laughs> your mechanic or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Score a goal and become immortal and then go back to selling cars the next day. I think that's kind of a remarkable thing. Isn't it? Like football used to be. People talk about turning up to see the FA Cup final and going on the bus with the players. It's kind of mad, isn't it? It's mm. it's this little island of, uh, I suppose, nostalgia in some ways for a time gone by, but also there's a certain degree of honesty to it because they don't get paid. Now, obviously, they train at a level of professionals. You know, they're training as as often as professionals would. And mm. the, the skill involved in it is incredible. I mean, the ball goes at well over 100 miles an hour. And... There's also tragedy. I think. I think as a, as a, as a ham yourself, Michael, you like the sort of <laughs> pathos involved in that. If you, you could be one of the best ever proponents of this particular sport, and if you're born the wrong side of a border, you could play with a weaker county and never win anything. Yeah. Never win anything because they don't transfer, and your county is your county, and that's it. Mm. So. I think that's sort of glorious. And the year, this is the last year we won anything in, in hurling. Um, it was 1998. I was a young college student. We played in the provincial final and we lost. And it was the first year ever. So it's like the FA Cup in terms of the knockout basis of it. Right. Uh, we, we lost in the final and it was the first every year that they decided to have this backdoor system. So we lost and the team was down. They changed the managers and then they went into this bigger draw and they played County Clare. And what happened was uh, I was in Croke Park, the National Stadium, it's rammed and we are a couple of points down against County Clare and the referee blows up early. He blows up before time is up and <laughs> all of us sit on the pitch and protest this. Wow. And we get a replay and we win the replay and we go into the All-Ireland Final and then we win the All-Ireland Final and we haven't won anything since and it's this <laughs> I, uh, in, in hurling. I think it's, and I think it's wrapped up in my... My love of the sport, and also I haven't lived in my home county for 25 years. Right. Do you know the way people, when they move 
abroad, they become kind of more English than they were originally, or they become more Irish and they become, yeah, yeah. you know, that sort of expat vibe. I think there's a, there's an element of that to it as well, you know, because it, it's, it's where I'm from, but I don't live there anymore. So that's why I hold it in this high esteem, you know? Yes. It's where all the performers who have stopped performing in those areas, they still go abroad and perform and everybody goes, oh, we love Kenneth McKenna. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a similar thing, isn't it? It's tied up with your sense of yourself. It's it's tied up. I mean, I I, I did a gig a while ago in, in my home county and there's a guy in the front row who, or a few rows back, who had played on that team and uh, he thought I was going to mess with him and slag him and stuff. And I just kind of went, oh, thanks for the memories. I became mm. a little bit emotional. Yeah. And all these people are looking at me who are familiar with me just kind of messing with the front row going, he's having some sort of breakdown over a match that was 20 more than years ago. So, yeah, But uh, then you also, you go into the, all right, don't look at me like that. For goodness sake, you don't understand. The ball goes at over 100 miles an hour. They're not professionals. They do it because they love it. I can absolutely understand that, the fact that you are completely in love with that. It's it's there's a sort of a purity to it. Now I'm kind of romanticizing it to a certain degree because obviously if you put a lot of money, you know, if you've a kind of a benefactor, you know, you do start winning things because you have strength and conditioning coaches and all that sort of stuff. Mm, yeah. But there's still a degree of purity to it that makes me adore it, you know. And I I speak as someone who has no physical ability to play any of these sports <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Like I do play with those lads who play indoor football and I have been done for speed by a 60-year-old. Like when a guy runs by you and you can hear the clicking of his hip, do you know, <laughs> do you know when you turn on the breaker switch for an electric shower yeah. and that's the same as a guy whizzing by you. So I have no <laughs> physical ability whatsoever. Uh, as anybody who saw me in Dancing with the Stars might attest to, um, I do think that... I, I kind of admired that level of, of ability as well, you know? Yeah. And when I, when I was growing up, we'd, I didn't play that sport. I played rugby in my hometown because that was what the lads who didn't play other sports were allowed to play, you know? And how were you at rugby? Um, I often walked off entirely clean, which I always <laughs> thought was, was a bad side in terms of the ball possession, you know? Yes, uh, not necessarily your fault. It may be the rest of the team saying, don't give it to Neil. Don't give it to Neil, please <laughs> yeah. don't. Uh, no, that was that was probably one of the issues I had. I, I remember talking to a guy out there. It, they had a good rugby tradition, though. A guy told me that one of my favourite stories from the rugby club once was, um, there's a guy who's a very good winger, but he was he, fairly inattentive and um, he was fairly gullible. And one day he was in the dressing room and they said to him, he had a bit of a groin strain and they gave him, uh, I think it was called wintergreen at the time, which is mm -hmm. deep heat essentially. Yeah. Uh, but he, he got it on his thigh, but he also got it on his... <sighs> So they they, oh. they go for a scrum, right? And um, they look along the line because they're going to give it to him. And he's not there. He's not on the wing. And they're like, where is he? <laughs> so they go over and he's in a ditch beside, <laughs> beside the ground. And he's just dipping his spits into a ditch. <laughs> like there's steam coming off them. Like some a sort stream. Of, like, <laughs> a nice cold mountain stream. That's what I need. Yeah. This, this bucolic idea of, of fields in the background and this guy gently lapping his steaming testicles. Oh, but, um, Neil, you take me back to a school time memory that I, oh, go on. I, I, oh, I desperately try to push it out of my mind. Uh, we had a sportsmaster Oh, I think it was a bit of a pervert, actually, but he insisted that none of us could wear our underpants under our shorts because it was unhygienic. And not many of us had sort of sports briefs, as they were called, you know, yeah. or jock straps, really. We were only lads. We didn't have them. So we used to play rugby just in our shorts. And uh, there was one boy in our team who was very fast and he was running down the wing and somebody 
dived after him and grabbed him and pulled his shorts down. And we all thought this was hysterically funny until we realised that with his shorts had come his foreskin. Oh, Christ. Mm-hmm. Oh, my good Lord. I'm f- okay, I have many questions. Did you... St- <laughs> Did you score? Uh, that's the first question. <laughs> he didn't score for months. <laughs> <laughs> what age is he at this point? What? About 14, yeah. Oh, Lord. Mm. So, uh, doctor called. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, mother of God. That was Writhing been... in agony on the floor. Well, oh. and, and what you don't want is, uh, as the audience of 14-year-old boys who obviously think it's hilarious at the start, mm-hmm. I mean, there's minimum levels of sympathy from your teammates, I would have thought. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. We were in hysterics. And then we realised exactly what had happened. And I mean, you swallow the laugh because you yeah. just go, oh, God. Oh, yeah, good. and then you imagine yourself in that position and then you get kind of slightly terrified because mm-hmm. you can't cope with that sort of stuff when you're 14 anyway. No. I don't think I cope well with it now, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> I don't think there's an age where you get, where you think <laughs> seeing a foreskin ripped off, you go, ah, listen, been here, done that. <laughs> have, a, ha- have a T-shirt. But I know that the local sports store completely sold out of jock straps that week. <laughs> 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 if I mean, if that was if he was slightly more successful, and that was the modern era, there would be an ad campaign with that fella. His agents would <laughs> have him on the front of everything, wouldn't they? <laughs> they would, yeah. Oh my god! Well, I love the idea of hurling. I've only seen it on the television a couple of times, but I have to say, I, I do find it a really exciting game. I mean, the speed with which the ball goes around, and the as with hockey, actually, the fitness of the players is astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, there's somebody running full tilt. Mm. I mean, full tilt in front of 80 odd thousand people with a stick and a ball balanced at the end of the stick. And then they flick it up and hit it over a bar 60 yards away. Yeah. I mean, if you don't see the grace and balletic skill in that, I mean, I have issues with you as a human being. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like sports. But it, it basically... You could hate sport, but if you just look at what the human body is capable of, mm. it's incredible. Like, it's incredibly beautiful to watch, I think. Yeah, yeah. So for, for all those reasons, and for that's the kind of, you know, it's it's how you wish your body would work if you, if you had a choice. Uh, so yes. in my time capsule, and I also, uh, there's an element of wanting to freeze it in ice or preserve it in aspic or whatever way you want to say it, because I think it is changing. So for the time capsule point of view, if we open this in a hundred years, I hope it is as it is now and it hasn't become professional and we're not looking at the Dublin franchise that has mm-hmm. moved to Galway, like like uh, <laughs> uh, like American kind of franchises and teams. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the other reason I pick it. And I think it's been important for for Irish people abroad, you know, I mean, there, there has been all Ireland's played in the polo grounds in, in New York, for example, mm-hmm. in the, in the forties. And it was, it's, it's to do with the, the kind of the diaspora. I mean, there are, it, there are county boards in England, for example. So uh, like Warwickshire has a team, London has a team right. of exile, of exiles. And so for all those reasons, I'm, I'm going to pick it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good choice. And particularly, I think for that match where people protested, the idea that actually fans, because of the injustice of it, yeah, that's what that, I like that, about it. That they can affect change because most of these things, I suppose if you compare it to the other thing that we were annoyed about when, when in my sporting life was Thierry Henry handling the ball and mm-hmm. uh, 
I mean, it was immediately evident that nobody was going to get justice for that. In the same way that England didn't get justice for the hand of God, even though there was a, a truly remarkable goal scored after that, which is one of the best goals that's ever been scored by a human being. Yeah. Um, the idea that we are going to get justice for events in sport, I mean, that has been bred out of us, really. Mm. Particularly in football with VAR, yeah. VAR, sometimes they'll say, yeah, that's a penalty, and sometimes they won't, which is exactly what a referee used to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think with the Gaelic sports as well, it, 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 there is an element of it. It's still, it's like football was kind of 30, 40 years ago. So, you mean, you don't really have diving. You don't really have the same level of showboating. You don't really have some of the things that we might dislike with modern football. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's one of the, the appeals of it as well. It's quite a... Now, I am romanticising it. I am, you know, it's quite, it's quite honest, I suppose, in some ways. There's, there's, there is cynicism as well in it, but, you know, maybe a little bit less so than other sports. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're describing Ireland, aren't you? <laughs> oh, no, there's way more cynicism in Ireland. Way more. I mean, begrudgery is a national pastime uh, here. That's, that's a, I always think that uh, there was probably a doctor who invented a cure for begrudgery in Ireland, but he didn't give the cure to anybody. <laughs> I always think that that is an idea here. Um, it's the same as tall poppy syndrome in Australia. You know, there's, a, there's an element of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I I I don't know if I would romanticise here in quite the same way as it's this particular section of here. Yeah, lovely. All right, and that's the first thing that goes into the time capsule, Neil. Yeah. Okay, so what's number two? Number two is heist films. Right. I don't know why. I absolutely adore heist films. And maybe you can tell me, Mike, why I love them so much. And my wife always goes, I think it's something about the planning that you like. And I'm like... Well, I mean, there's a lot of planning in a wedding and I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't like going to them. I don't get excited when you sit down and go, here's a two hours about why Uncle Brandon can't sit beside Auntie Mary, you know. <laughs> but there's something about all heist films. I'll watch Inside Man or Clive Owen. I think that's Spike Lee. Mm. Uh, and if I, have, if I have to pick a specific film to go into the time capsule, I think I'll pick Rafifi. Because my wife knew I loved Rafifi. Do you, are you familiar with Rafifi? No, I'm not. I didn't know anything about it. She just knew when we got together that I loved heist films and she did a a search and kind of got me the DVD back in the day for Christmas because it's meant to be the quintessential heist film. It's French, it's black and white, it's uh, the 50s. And I suppose it's an hour and a half long and the heist scene in the middle of it is 32 minutes and it's silent. (laughs) They don't speak. And I don't even think there's any, uh, I'm trying to remember, is there any incidental music? Amazing. But the a- absolute neck that you'd have to have to put that in a film that only lasts an hour and a half or an hour and 40 minutes yeah. and get away with it. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's the one that started them all, you know? Yeah, those ideas that people have for those films, you think, well, it's probably a good job they're making films because they would be master criminals, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. i tell you what a guy told me once years ago about... Uh, I'm not going to name the company, but he used to work for an armoured car company, right? Mm. And he said they used to do it. Now, I don't know if this is true, but it really appeals to my sensibilities. They used to give them an aptitude test if they brought on a new recruit. And say you needed, say, 50 out of 100 to to be deemed capable to be working in the armoured van division. They would give to the 10 jobs. They would give the 10 jobs to the people who got over 50 but as close to 50 as possible. If you got 90 out of 100, 
They didn't give the job to the top guys or the top girls. They uh, gave it to the people who were just capable of doing the job <laughs> because they didn't want yeah. some genius <laughs> sitting in the armoured car with 10 million quid in the background going, hmm, what am I getting paid a year to do this? And how much money can I rob from the back of this van? I think there's a flaw in this system. Yeah. If I take out this transponder and put it in my microwave for 40 minutes and then tie it to the back of another fan and all the rest. And there's a part of me that, well, uh, first of all, I would certainly love to write a heist film. Mm. I, I think lots of performers think, yeah, you know, there's, there's, you know, you have ebbs and flows in your, in your, in your work and you're doing really well. And no, I don't know anything about that now. Yeah. <laughs> now, nah, hold on. <laughs> you don't know about from which side. You've never well, done I, well. I've or, never or, done a single job in my life. No. <laughs> yeah, I've seen your CV. I know you're coming back from, from yeah, what we would call high status in comedy rather than low status. I've seen Only Fools and Horses. I've seen the musical. Um, I do think that there's an element of people who perform who go... Yeah, I'd rob a bank if there was if enough money in it, and then I could choose my projects after that. And mm. like, I've gotten to the point where I know how I'd launder the money and stuff, Mike. You know, you, know, you have to <laughs> you have to have a cash business. That's the whole thing. You have to have a cash business. You know. Yeah, and also, without a doubt, you've got to surround yourself with as few people as possible, and you've got to make sure that none of them is an idiot, because nearly everybody who has actually done that and has been caught has always been caught by something really simple, like parking a car and getting a parking ticket. Yeah, that's that's what I like about the heist films. Is always there's, there's certain tropes, so the mastermind they always explains the plan there is always someone like you say the idiot because the plan if the plan goes perfectly well and there's no loose cannon well then you know you've got no film no. so yeah you have to have people in your crew who have as much at stake as you and you have to have people who like like look i've said the word crew like i'm a master <laughs> criminal here <laughs> people in the crew who, was, who won't flip on you and turn state's evidence oh. and and you have to have a cash business afterwards, which, by the way, comedy, live comedy would be perfect that, because that's how you launder the money. <laughs> Very when good, you think yeah. about it, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. giving this way too much thought. <laughs> I once, here's another one. I once spoke to the equivalent of somebody who worked on, and it wasn't in this jurisdiction, and it wasn't where you are. So I'll just say that, first of all. Mm. Um, who worked on a sort of a crime watch effort. He was a, he was a copper. And uh, he once told me, if you went and robbed a bank and didn't case it first, he said, you'd get away with it. Really? Yeah, he said, you have a very good chance you'd get away with it. If you never turned up in the first, you know, like if you never went and tried to figure it out and how it all worked. Um, just just walk in. Yeah, yeah. Give so, me the money, walk out. Yeah, because otherwise it's just look back and two weeks ago and this guy turned up then and all the rest. He said, yeah. you have a very good, very good chance of. Uh, Not that good. I am in any way or shape or form of course, saying not. that people That's should good. rob banks. No, no, no. Post no, offices no. are much you easier. You should rob banks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should rob banks, but I'd be very much a Robin Hood. I'd steal from the banks and give to the building societies. I would. <laughs> but there's something about heist films. I don't know. Have you ever been in one? No, I've never been in one. No, I do love the idea of it. I, I mean, I've been. I played a bank manager who was um, held up by Keith Allen. <laughs> oh well if you're going to be held up by anybody I mean it is the sheriff of Nottingham yeah. isn't it there's no acting involved he was bloody terrifying <laughs> <laughs> and my father was a criminal lawyer so in fact he was involved in lots of armed robberies and you know defending always defending the one that sticks in my mind is that he was involved in the Bank of America robbery which I think right. at the time was 
the biggest robbery by far. It was just huge. And in fact, it was one of those robberies where they emptied all the safety deposit boxes. So nobody had any idea how much money had been taken. And to a large extent, they got away with it. The people at the top got away with it. People were arrested and were convicted of it. But most of the people involved, just the money disappeared and they have no idea where it is. And some of the people that my father had defended were from the area where I live, down in Kent. There's a pub near me. I'm not going to name it in case I get in trouble. But there's a pub near me where we would go in there. And it had the most ridiculously expensive carpets. (laughs) (laughs) He always would say, Bank of America money. No way. Yeah. I mean, like there, there is still, I mean, there is, it's, it's a saccharine view of the world because we do, I mean, we watch Ocean's 11 and mm-hmm. we watch Ocean's 12 and, and we love all those things and there's something about the camaraderie involved. And um, so they clearly appeal to loads and loads of people, not just me. And we also hopefully all realise that there's a slight difference between the brutal real life uh, stealing of money from a bank versus mm. the George Clooney and Brad Pitt looking absolutely amazing trying to do Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin impressions of the Rat Pack <laughs> in the 1960s. But I don't know why I've always liked that genre of film. Do you like them to get away with it? Oh, I mean, yeah, you do. Mm. I mean, the whole point is, I mean, you have to be quite clever in terms of you, you pick the bad, like I, I, I always like the, uh, how the, the robbery is set up in terms of something about the planning, but also they always make the thieves sympathetic and they always make sure that the little people, the normal people like the rest of us whose money is involved, you Mm. know, that they don't get hammered. And it's always a really unsympathetic main character, like uh, not Al Pacino, Andy Garcia. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's, It's funny you say the little things slip you up. We covered on the podcast, we, we did something about Gerard McCater, who was a, it was a Flemish map maker. You know the map that you had on the wall at school? Yeah. Uh, the wall chart. Well, that's essentially wrong because there's always a, an issue if you have a 3D globe on a 2D surface. So something has to give, essentially. So Mercator was in the 1500s and he developed the Mercator projection, which allows you to stay in the same compass bearing, basically. But what happened was uh, certain countries further away from the equator are stretched. So you know when you looked at that map and you went, oh God, Greenland is the same size as Africa. It's mm. nowhere near the same size, right? Right. But yeah. anyway, because we were talking talking about Mercator and we were looking at Belgium facts for part one of the show, we talked about this diamond heist in Antwerp and they stole millions. And like you said, they opened all the safety deposit boxes and they they didn't know how much was gone at the start. And the reason they were able to catch them is a guy, and this is so weird, a guy was out walking his weasel. (laughs) He was walking his weasel on a lead. And he went, I, he had a bit of forest by the motorway and instead of getting rid of all the stuff properly from the robbery, these very distinctive green diamonds and stuff, uh, they dumped them on this motorway because somebody panicked or they strip off the motorway mm. and Mr. Van Camp, I think he was, found <laughs> um, when he was out walking his weasel on a lead. How weird is that? Well, pretty camp, yeah. Yeah, and he rang, rang the cops and the cops went, you seen what? And they found a receipt in the rubbish and they were able to trace <sighs> it right back to that. Yeah, yeah, that's how simple it is. In the Bank of America robbery, the man who was organising it hid in the false roof above the vault for no. something like two weeks. He went in what? He went in there and they thought he'd left the bank, but what he'd done is he climbed into the false ceiling above the vault and he made a little hole and he had a tiny little telescope, I think, yeah. and was just watching them and writing down the numbers and trying to get the numbers for the combination. 
Did he have a, a commode? Did he have uh, food? Was yeah, yeah, he'd organise he... it. So he, he went up there, took everything with him in a bag. I mean, the level. I mean, there's a part of part of me like just admires the sheer chutzpah of that. Mm. You know, I'd be very good at planning this stuff. I don't know if I'd be able to lie above. <laughs> <laughs> I think my stomach could probably give it away. It'd be just... Yeah. Uh, so I don't know why that appeals to me so much, but it, it but it does, you know. And prison breaks are the same. Is it something to do with planning? Is it, is it... I don't know. No, do you like doing your tax? Oh, Christ, no. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that's why I want to rob all that money and go off to Brazil. Yes, <laughs> quite. Because I don't, don't like doing my tax. No, I find that find that very dull. Um, I suppose if there's if there's the chance of this bizarre, uh, life-changing amount of money at the end, you'll, mm. you'll plan for something. It's the thing that makes you gamble in, on everything. And I suppose, really, robbing yeah. a bank is the biggest gamble, isn't it? Because you are basically gambling 20 years of your life. Yeah, whereas doing your tax is planning to give your money away. So it doesn't <laughs> quite have the same sort of sizzle in your system. Some people might say it's planning to give your money away. And other people might say it's planning to keep as much of it as you possibly can. <laughs> have you had Jimmy Carr on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, no. Lovely. Oh, wow. Well, I, I love a heist movie, so I'm definitely going to put the whole genre into the time capsule for you. That's the second item, Neil. Okay, let's move on to number three. There we are. I told you Neil would make you laugh. We'll take a little pause here for some adverts, but we'll be back in no time. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Did you miss me? Well, you want to improve your aim. Right, let's return to the stand-up comedian and TV panellist Neil Delamere and find out what else he would like to put in his time capsule and the one thing he'd like to bury and forget. I know you're going to hate this um, because I know you hate people putting their dog in, but I'm going to put a dog in. 
I'm going to put a composite of all the best dogs I've ever had in. That's what uh-huh. I'm going to do. Because my wife kind of fosters dogs. So if we, uh, well, we both do, but she kind of started it. So if a dog needs to kind of stay with us for a couple of weeks while its owner is away, or if they're in between kind of being rescued and going to their forever home, shall we say, mm. we would mind them and have done for, for a couple of years. So we've had a good few dogs throughout the house. So the current one, I think I'd put her in the time capsule, um, obviously, as long as she is happy in there. Uh, so she's a three-legged lurcher called Lola. <laughs> and uh, she is like, I mean, this is a kind of a quite an antisocial job I have in some ways. So you, you get home from a gig and, you know, it could be one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning. And to have that welcome that this this three-legged beast is sitting on the couch waiting for you to have a cup of tea and talk to her and play with her and, and walk her and uh, look at the foxes is remarkable. And because she's got three legs, she's led me into all sorts of bizarre scenarios. So I go to the local dog park with her and um, when I go down, there's all these people, I don't know if you've, if you've ever had dogs, you bring dogs to a dog park, all the people in the dog park insist on letting you know how much they know about dogs. They just have to. So they're all like, oh my God, I love your dog. I love your dog. It's, that a, it's a Belgian shepherd, isn't it? It's a, a lot of people think it was a German shepherd, but I know it's a Belgian shepherd because I heard a bark earlier and that's definitely a Belgian accent. So It, it rolled its ours, yeah. It rolled its ours. I think it got raff, raff. So it's not a German shepherd. I know it's a Belgian shepherd. So I turn up with her and because some of these people wreck my head, I deliberately pretend to know nothing about dogs. Like to the extent that I don't don't realise she should have four legs. <laughs> and this drives them absolutely bananas, Mike. It's hilarious to watch. They'll be like, oh my God, what's wrong with your dog? And I go, what are you talking about? Like, what's wrong with your dog? And I go... <laughs> it is hairy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, we should get her clipped all right, yeah. And she's like, well, she should have two front legs. And I'm like, yeah, two front legs. Go on out of that. Spider, spider dog. What are you talking about? And then I look around and go, oh, God, yes, she should. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought she was like a hatchback or something. I just thought we got like an entry level dog. But maybe, maybe she should. And um, it's a weird thing of when you have a three-legged dog, people trust you. Like if you were a a murderous psychopath, I would suggest you get a three-legged dog because people look at you and they think that you're a lovely person because you have a three-legged dog and you're minding a three-legged dog. Mm. And you, whereas you could be some sort of killer, you know? You could be Um, the person who took the leg. Yeah, yeah, you could be. Sometimes people, people do always ask how she lost her leg. Um, So I've I've started to make stuff up at this point. You've not started to say, well, maybe I beat her a bit too hard. I haven't gone that far yet. No. But I I have, I've said landmine once to somebody and they went, (laughs) what? And then I just walked away. Huge amount of landmine. She used to belong to Princess Diana. Yeah, she did a lot of work in uh, in Cambodia. She did a lot of work in Vietnam. I mean, she's she's just brave. I walked her the other day and um, just genuinely happened. I walked around the corner and a man walked around the corner and he had one leg and he was on crutches. And he saw my dog and my dog saw him and he looked at me and I didn't say anything. And he went, huh, snap. And then he just walked away again. I was like, whoa. I do adore dogs for many reasons. And... Um, when we got her first, I have to tell you, we got her first and I I went out for a gig and I forgot about it. Um, well, we came home for lunch, I should say, right? Myself mm. and my wife were out for lunch. We came home for lunch and there was a kind of weird smell in the in the kitchen and sitting room, like, like a musty smell. And we thought, she's new to the house. She's had a wee. She's mm. just finding her way around. Looked around, couldn't find anything. I went out to a gig and forgot. Go back that night. My wife had gone out and she purchased an ultraviolet lamp. 
and was scanning the kitchen and sitting room floor like a CSI forensic <laughs> detective, like Dexter looking for, for we. And I, I, I'm starting to laugh at her a little bit. Not much, no, not much. And uh, I'm also kind of secretly relieved that my own mother never had access to that when I was a teenager, that sort of level of analytical tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's looking around and I said, did you find anything? And she said, no, I didn't find anything. And I said, okay, well, maybe she hasn't weed inside. Mm-hmm. And she goes, no, I think maybe she has and we can't find it. Maybe the lamp doesn't work. <laughs> and I, yeah, you could see where this is going. And I, in my naivety, did not know where this was going, like an idiot. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And she goes, we have to test the lamp. And I said, okay, still not dawning on me what was going to happen. And she looked at me and my wife of many years who I adore who was the best thing that ever happened to me looked at me and I quote said have a pee on the floor somewhere and I'll see if I can find it <laughs> and don't, like, well, don't tell me where <laughs> yeah I'd had, I'd had a lovely gig and now I'm suddenly involved in some sort of urinary based treasure hunt <laughs> and I'm looking around my, I'm like I'm not weighing on the floor it's not a Weatherspoons what do you expect <laughs> from me so I I refused to do that but I did I did kind of meet her halfway shall we say I went I went off to the to loo and um Gave a sample there and, uh, <laughs> with her favourite mug. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, the lamp does work. Does, it does okay, work. good. Isn't it That's odd the I'd way say. people, some people become absolutely inured to the smells of their dog? Yeah. I would cite the fact that when my daughter and her husband bought their first house, we went into it and said, it's a, it's a bit, mm, it's yeah. a smell. What's that smell? And eventually the living room was tiled but it was tiled directly onto floorboards, which meant that it had moved. And I said to them, did these people, the people who owned it before, did they have a dog? Yeah. And they went, yeah, they're two great big dogs. And I said, right, did they leave them there during the day? I said, yeah. yeah. I said, it's urine. Yeah. They've been weeing on the floor. Yeah. The people have come home and it's soaked through and we lifted the tiles. Neil, the floorboards were absolutely sodden. No way. Yeah. You could wring them out almost. Oh, it, God. It was the most disgusting thing. I spent it, two days pulling urine-soaked wood out <laughs> of this thing. It was horrible. Oh, the things we do for our family that we wouldn't do for anybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do think, uh, I think certain dog breeds certainly, certainly suit certain people. So lurchers are great because they're quite lazy and stuff, you know. And I, I don't think I'd ever have, I quite like a stupid dog. I've had really stupid dogs. I quite like them. <laughs> I'd never have a collie because they are working dogs, yeah. you know. I always think you never see a collie as a guide dog because I just think like, they just slip out of the harness and be like, yeah, 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 there's the bus coming. Do you know what I mean? I think that... I did like some I, guiding this morning, for goodness yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm done. That, that hot wire a car for you. I was watching <laughs> I was watching a programme called The Wonder of Dogs and there was one of the tests was they, they put a towel on a dog's head and uh, how quickly it shook the towel off was a measure of its intelligence. Right. And they got a poodle and he did it in three or four seconds and they got an Alsatian and he did it in like nine or 10 seconds. And they put the towel on a collie and he just folded it into the shape of a swan. <laughs> that, I'm slightly exaggerating, but that is the level of intelligence that they have. And I just think, you you, you know, yeah. I, unless that dog is working all the time and is rounding up sheep and is doing something, you know, I don't, you shouldn't have a dog like that. So you should kind of be aware of that sort of stuff. But No, and it's uh, nice to have a dog that when you look at it, it goes, what, what? Yeah, what is going on? What is going on? I, my, when my last guy passed away, I don't really have many insurances. My wife 
loves her insurance. And I think the reason is because I married above myself. (laughs) And so I look at her and think nothing will go wrong. And she looks at me and thinks, give me all the insurances. (laughs) Look at this idiot. Um, And the dog passed away and she said, ring the vet. Sorry, ring the insurance company because they might cover the vet bill. That's what insurance is for. And I rang up this woman and I said, listen, uh, the dog is no longer with us. Can you cover the last vet bill? And she said, no, it's under the excess in the policy. And I said, no problem. Can we go ahead and cancel the policy? And she said, absolutely. But can I ask why you want to cancel the policy? <laughs> right? And we thought, I don't know about you, but I think it's overly cautious to continue to to insure a dog that, that had died. I mean, what do you want to insure? A private room in heaven or something? Like, what do you want? It does seem like a fairly, fairly obvious thing to do. And I, I just... I just said to this woman, um, and she was she was lovely, and I just said, well, as I said, the dog's no longer with us. And she said, <laughs> she said, did he die or did he run away? Because if he ran away, we covered that. And I was like, well, then he ran away. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes. what, what do you think? And we went through this whole conversation on the phone, like, why did he run away? And I was like, I couldn't read his note. I don't know, but, you know, <laughs> put down put down fireworks or something. And she was like, oh, well, we don't normally have fireworks in May. And I was like, but I'm pretending. Yeah. It, they came as a shock to the dog. That's why he ran away as well, you know. So, um, but they have given me untold joy and I can't envisage a time in the future where I wouldn't want a dog. Assuming mm. that my lifestyle suits their lifestyle and I'm here and all the rest. I wouldn't like to leave them for any length of time. And stuff. Yeah. So definitely my, my third item, if you will allow it for me, because I know it's an obvious thing to say. I will do. I will do. No, I know I've complained about it before and saying people pick their It's unimaginative, pets. that's why. No, no, it's not. You pick the thing that means the most to you. And actually always when people pick a pet, the reason is different. They tell a different right. story. And I have great sympathy for you as well because my parents owned a three-legged dog. No and, way. Yeah. I was very fond of it. When I got the dog, my cousin said to me, so we, her front right leg was gone before we got her. I think it was a car accident. And my, my cousin said to me, it's a shame the vet didn't remove her back leg instead. And I was like, you know they tend to remove the injured leg, don't you? <laughs> like... This wasn't a punishment beating or something. Like, what do you think she'd steal something in, in some country? That... <laughs> While you've got your dog in here, do you fancy me, you could, you know, take a leg off or something? Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, go. Yeah, go. Why not? Yeah. Just like, the, the, there's no point in a heist film where the dog is on, on a chair going, <laughs> we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Who robbed the Bank of America? And the dog's like, I'm saying nothing. And then... <laughs> So I thought that was a bit of a weird one. Uh, I wonder, I wonder, could something be done? A friend of mine said to me, I could th- 3D print a leg for your dog. Right. Yeah. Ooh. And I was like, I'm not sure. I've seen dogs with wheels. Yeah. And I suppose you have to ask the question all the time is the qu- what quality of life has any pet got? That's what you want. And you also want when it comes to a point where you have a cat or a dog or any sort of pet, I always think, how much crack are they having? Are they enjoying themselves? Yeah. And if they're not enjoying themselves, well, then it's time to, to say good luck. And I always find that vets, obviously, you have to be quite careful. I remember when my last dog, he got uh, sick and it was quite evident towards the end, like, this is the time that we have to say goodbye. Mm. Um, but I remember the vet saying, I said, listen, is, is today the time? And they were quite non-committal because they have to be. And she's like, well, um, you'll, you'll know, you'll know the right time. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, 
yeah, but is this the right time? <laughs> and she's like, well, you'll know the right time. Mm. You can see the dog getting bored itself going, yeah. listen, I, I'm away. <laughs> I'm away here. Like, just do, do the job, you know? Yeah. And was it the right time? I know it was, yeah. The, the dog was in great form. And then one day he didn't want to eat and he didn't want to walk. I brought him for a little walk. Uh, and he and he loved walks as they all do. And he turned around after about five yards, and mm. I went, "No, he's this is it." No. We said goodbye. We yeah. said goodbye, and um, my wife said, "I want him to be buried on my dad's uh, a bit of my dad's land because I want to know where he is." Hmm. And oh, I was I was in ribbons at that point. I was absolutely <laughs> in ribbons. I was reminded of my first dog, who. I know a dog can't be a legend, but the dog was an absolute legend. In the 1980s in rural Ireland, kind of rural Ireland, what you would consider rural Ireland, we would consider ourselves townies. But anyway, <laughs> we got a phone call. The dog got out one day uh, from the back garden and uh, he went around and we got a phone call from one of the neighbours, one of the farmers, and he went, do you have a black labrador? And I said, yes. I was only about nine. I said, mm. yes. And he just, there was a pause and he said, well, he rode our bitch and then he ate her dinner. <laughs> And the dog came home slightly limping because I assume he'd been high-fiving all the other dogs <laughs> on the way into our house. And he, he just sat in front of the in front of the fire licking himself like, lads, I'm a total legend. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and that dog, as a result, goes on and rightly yeah. so. Yeah, <laughs> it lives on in the memory. Yeah, brilliant. Fantastic. Okay, we'll put that into the time capsule. A dog that is all your dogs. All my dogs. Composite mm. of all the best brats of all my dogs, yeah. Wonderful. Okay, so we've got two left, Neil. We've got one that you want to keep and one that you want to put in there because you'd like to forget it. Um, the thing I'd like to keep is, I don't know if I should go for a moment or the moment. Mm. And it's, I've done panel shows for... 16 or 17 years now I've done I got my start in one with Dara O'Brien on RT television Dara O'Brien and Andrew Maxwell the people will know and Ed Byrne and yeah, yeah. Colin Murphy and I've done one in BBC in Belfast for 15 or 16 years uh, with Colin Murphy and Tim McGarry and all the rest mm. and there is a moment in panel shows and I'm not talking about the ones that are very tightly scripted and the ones that are very competitive you know mm. I'm talking about the moment of a panel show where there's probably two people each side and a person in the middle where it starts to spin off <laughs> where it starts to spin around the houses QI is a great example of this indeed um, yeah. or you know Sandy Tuxveg says something uh, Alan Davis brings it somewhere kind of ridiculous with the mime and then Ramesh or Susan Kamen or whatever kind of tops it off this mm. moment where it spirals out and an audience, and you know, for being a member of an audience and also performing to many, many audiences, audiences are really remarkably intuitive and remarkably bright in, a, in an unthinking way, if you know what I mean. We, we as audience members know when something is happening in the room as we watch it. Yeah. Uh, it's not scripted. And that moment where we all know this can go anywhere. It's absolute gold. It's better than any one liner. It's better than any pre prepared thing it's the thing that people love in outtakes mm. and i think it's absolutely glorious there's yeah. nothing i enjoy more being involved in or seeing and it's why i love panel shows still i do panel shows with people who there's first of all there's the room to develop a, an idea and second of all i don't know what they're going to say i've no idea what they're going to say and they make me laugh as much as they're making an audience <laughs> member laugh <laughs> I love watching it when that happens, when somebody says something and 
another panelist will come back with a line and you just see everybody's brain spark. Yeah. And they they know we have hit a vein here. This is absolute this is platinum. We're going to go through this. It's going to be gorgeous. And you don't know you can do it yourself until you do a panel show. I, I remember the first time I ever did a panel show was 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 this one. It was called a panel and it was a, an Australian format. And Dara had presented the first season of it in 2003. And mm-hmm. I was just watching it. My brother said to me, God, you should try and do that. And I was like, nah, when am I going to do that? <laughs> and I was on it the next year and I sat there and I looked across the table and I've been doing stand up three years or something. Mm -hmm. And between Ed Byrne and Colin and Maxwell and um, O'Brien, there was probably 40 years experience. And Uh, I had done, and I was sitting there going, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus. Now, a lot of people freeze in that situation and you see them do it. You know, it's people, you know, are very, very funny. They just, they, they just become overwhelmed by it. Yeah, and, and the good thing about lately in the last few years is that there is, there's a democratisation of access, which I think is amazing. So you, you might be someone who's brilliant at panel shows, but you might be someone who hates panel shows and hates that sort of way of delivering material. But you mm. might be brilliant at sketches. Now suddenly through YouTube and Twitter and Instagram, there's a method for you to deliver your type of stuff to the masses. And you mm. don't have to go through this kind of grey suited gatekeeper who goes, that's acceptable and that is not acceptable. But if if you like panel shows and you do your first panel show and you're unsure and then you get caught in one of these things and you contribute, it's this amazing moment mm. of, there's a moment and we had this quite este- well-esteemed guest and I was about 24, 25. So you're kind of can get away with things that you, you know, because you're kind of young and naive and there's a woman <laughs> on and she's this very well-respected journalist and she would present the equivalent of Newsnight, I suppose, and she has eight children. She goes, oh, I have eight children. And I was like, jeez. And it was true. I said, you've been pregnant longer than my no claims bonus. <laughs> and it was just off the top of my head. And yeah. she roared laughing because you're sweet and innocent and there's, there's, there's nothing, there's no side to that. And it's no. true. And I remember this fizz going through me going, Jesus, I've just come up with something off the top of my head on this panel show. And oh my, maybe, maybe... Maybe I should keep doing this. Maybe that'll mm. allow me to keep doing this. Oh, my God. And um, I can remember the feeling still, Mike. Yeah, I bet. You do remember those moments. You remember the moments where you something comes straight into your head and it's good enough and well-written enough that you just say it out. I, I had that in a pantomime once. I said, who's come the furthest? Somebody said, USA. I said, all the way from America. Wow. I said, of course, you know about pantomime there. I said, there you call it a presidential election. Uh, <laughs> And I've said it before I'd even thought it. It's weird, isn't it? Because yeah. sometimes you say those things and they don't land. Yeah, yeah. So that's, just, that's still the great joy of these shows. I mean, the longer you go on, the more you think it will land. But you're still not fully sure. <laughs> you're still, there's still 10% of doubt in your head going, oh, this is, there's enough doubt here for this to be still exciting. Yeah. I always think that if... It's pretentious. I do think it's pretentious to call stand-up an art form in some ways, but I think it is when it's done very, very, very well. But it it, it strikes me that that it is the art form that the audience impacts the most. So when Michelangelo is creating David, because if you're going to be pretentious, you might as well be massively pretentious (laughs) and compare what you do to the greatest proponent of his art in the history of humanity. Um, But my point is, I suppose, is he, when he created David, he didn't do a bit of it, show it to an audience and go, what do you think? And then do another bit. No. And when Jez 
Butterworth wrote Jerusalem, I don't think he wrote it and then tested it. Whereas we do this thing where we go and do small gigs, as you well know, mm-hmm. and go, do you, do you like this? And the audience goes, yeah. And then they go, oh, no, I really like the other bit. So the audience creates it with us and we get better at, at creating shows and stuff, but you never really know what bit is going to be the funniest bit. And I kind of love, love that bit. And the reason I love panel shows as well is because they're the closest thing to stand up on TV. Mm. Do you know what I mean? In a way you're doing that in a panel show, you're, you're creating an act. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there was a bit where we had a guest host for one of our panel shows and all he did was just somebody was saying something to, to him in his ear mm. and there was a pause in proceedings and we just went, Hey, Jerry, Jerry. And for the next minute, it was like, Jerry, uh, you're doing it. You're doing the TV show, Jerry. They're playing bridge in the day room. But at the moment, you need, you need to concentrate on this. The nurse will come and get you and give you your tablets. And everybody just jumped on this. And he's, he's so, I think a lot about, a lot of this is about pe- people being confident in their positions. So mm. he, he, Jerry Kelly's such a, an expert broadcaster that he was able to sit in and relax into it. And I think, again, to come back to QI, because Alan and Sandy at the moment know that they're the regulars and, so, and don't have to fight for their position in lots of ways. Like I've done a panel show for so long that, and you know, and I'm on it every week that uh, we are kind of prepared to go, if you have an idea, off you go. Yes. Off you go. Take the heat off the lads who've been doing it for too long. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you give people the space. You give people the space and the time. So it's yeah. very easy, for example, if you started telling a funny story and I anticipated your punchline, it would be easy for me to nick it. Yeah. And I suppose there's, there's an element of if you do stuff with people a lot, you can learn their rhythms. It's like a, it's mm-hmm. like a midfield, you know, Rice is now beginning to learn how Bellingham plays and Bellingham knows how Henderson plays. And, you know, there's an element of that to it. And after a while doing shows with people, you, you can hear in their voice, they are building towards something. You know, they're improvising it and mm-hmm. you know, they're building towards something themselves. And you just learn to sit back and go, well, we'll see where we can come in here. So I do love that moment when the car is slightly spinning out of control nobody Mm. knows where it's going to go it's the most exciting part of those shows you know yeah an enormous thrill it's what the audiences love the most as well so you're right that an audience is always far more intelligent than people give it credit for we know when something is really magic and we know when something is in a way formulaic or has been pre-organized we understand that which is why the moments that you really treasure, as you do, are the moments where people just riff and amazing yeah. things happen. Same thing that happens in live gigs as well. It's the And it's the thing that people come up to you afterwards and say, they, they don't say, oh, I was at the show where you told that joke about X. They do say, I was at the show where the thing happened with the audience member. Yeah. I was at the show where, I remember we had a guy once... Um, People ask you, what's the weirdest thing that's you... Has it ever gone wrong when you talk to an audience member? There's a lovely man in the front row with two teenage sons, right? And he had a... He had... I could see his left arm and his right arm was was under his shirt and there was a bump there. So he, it was obviously in a sling of some sort, right? Mm. You know? And I said to him, because I thought it was in a sling, I said, oh, do you mind if I ask you what happened to your arm? And what he did was he flattened down his shirt and he didn't have a second arm. Oh. And everything went very quiet and... Uh, I, I didn't see anything because I had just said, do you mind if I ask what happened to your arm? And he then said, landmine. And it went really, really, really quiet. And then his teenage son just went, no, it wasn't like this. <laughs> and it dissipated all tension. And I had to go, 
He's gotten me out of this situation. I'm, I don't want to know what happened because I'm not getting back into this situation. That young lad has gotten me out of it, thank God. Brilliant. And uh, you might, now the guy came up to me afterwards and he actually explained the origin of it and it was very sad what had happened. And he said, I didn't want to tell you that because I thought it would drag down the gig. But I suppose you were getting people for the entirety of the Edinburgh Festival coming up afterwards saying, oh, I was at the gig where that happened. Because yeah, they bet. knew it didn't happen at any other gig and they knew that was special. And I think that's what I love, the, the special non-planned moment. Yeah, the joy of live performing. That goes into the time capsule. What a gorgeous thing. Okay, so we've got one thing, the thing you want to put in there and you won't have to worry about it again. I shall bury it. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I talked about festivals where I have loved things. There was a moment that was one of the weirdest gigs I think I've ever done. And it was one of those late night shows. And I'm talking, you know, two o'clock in the morning. And yeah. uh, you're doing it because it's just a rite of passage and you just have to do it. And you, to say you survived it. And I did it many years ago and um, I had done the show, you know, you're doing 10 minutes, but it starts at 1am or 2am, you know, and it's, um, it's doable earlier in the week. And then I do it later on the week and I get a little bit cocky, Mike, and uh, I start talking to the audience, which was a mistake because I didn't have the experience to handle <laughs> what was going to happen. So I kind of started to lose them and then there was a pause and a guy shouted, Get your balls out like that, <laughs> right? Yes. Now, I <laughs> I said I'll get them out if you get yours out. Under the misapprehension that a man who was that drunk at that hour of the night wouldn't get his testicles out. <laughs> well, I hadn't even finished the sentence. <laughs> I'll get them out if you get yours out. While he had them in his hand, I'm beginning to think he had pre-prepped them and they had been out anyway, to be honest with you. And he mounted the stage, cupping his own uh, scrotum. Uh, with a dexterity that was admirable, actually, because he only had one hand free and he was very drunk and he jumped onto the onto the stage with a plum. Right? <laughs> that is a counterbalance. He had to, yeah, yeah. He swung them out to his right and used his left hand as a as a balance, and he just kind of appeared there as if to say "ta-da." And a late night audience will forgive many things, but they will not forgive a broken promise. So I didn't, I didn't get mine out. I, oh. I didn't, and I think had I gotten them out. Um, I've thought about this, <laughs> not in great detail, but it has crossed my mind in the intervening years. Would it have been okay? Mm. But I went, well, I'm not getting, there's no way I'm doing that. It's insane. <laughs> and I didn't. And therefore, the next 10 minutes of the gig uh, were havoc. <laughs> Absolute havoc. As I just continue to do jokes. So I'm like, I'm not doing stand-up that long, right? Yeah. There's a man back in the audience really annoyed that he's gotten his testicles out and he had fulfilled his part of the contract, this verbal contract. And whereas I'm on stage just doing jokes like this thing had never happened. Like this, this thing that 200 people had witnessed, people are sitting there going, are you not going to address the elephant in the room that you have not done what you promised? Uh, but there's a selection of people at the front who are just genuinely listening to what I'm saying and like me because they cannot... They cannot understand what has happened and cannot fault my bravery. But the rest of the audience, and I'm talking four-fifths, hates me. Like, hates me yeah. with an absolute passion. And I didn't know that that was perfectly acceptable. I could have just kind of finished a bit early. Those gigs are kind of deliberately mad, you know. Mm. And I remember walking off stage, having done the time. Like, it was 20 minutes. <laughs> no. And it was 10 minutes of 
80% of the people dislike it. And I, I passed the comic and he looked at me and went, Jesus, fair play to you. I mean, I would have gotten off. And I was like, no, I needed the money. This is, I was contractually obliged to do this. Uh, so I think I'll put that in, not because of what he did, but because what I failed to do, I should have mm. built up to something and maybe gotten them out, but, but kind of hidden them so it's not an offence. Um, yeah, uh, find a clever yeah, way to do it, I know. Find a clever way to do it, under pressure. Uh, take them out and take a photograph of them. Yeah. I'll put it on Instagram and then put a photograph of an elephant's chesticles. <laughs> Was there chanting? Uh, well, there might have, there might have been, actually. <laughs> There probably was. I would have been leading it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or if I was an audience member, I would have been leading it as well. Mm. I mean, I should have just dismissed it or I should have, looking back, I should have absolutely just figured out a clever way to do it. Mm. Really built up to the end or built up to getting them getting them out at the very end and then not getting them out and gotten off. That would have been fine. Yeah. And when I say got off, you know what I mean? D- whatever you do, don't make the promise in the middle of the gig <laughs> and then not do it. But we live and learn. And I was about 22 at the time. I didn't know what I was yeah. doing, you know. And have you somewhere in your brain sat there and thought of a clever riposte for somebody who says, get your bollocks out? Uh, now, I, every time I go on stage, I have fake testicles on. I um I, I wear them as a matter of course. I had them specially moulded and on the off chance that if this ever happens again, they are presentable, they they are amazing, and uh, if it ever happens again, boom, I have a quick release fly. In fact in fact in fact if I can ever hunt that man down again and engineer him to shout it. Ask me again. Go on. Ask me again. Ask me again. It's like some sort of program with Davina McCall. This time next year, I'm going to find this man and put this ghost to rest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have. I haven't thought about. It. I, d- I haven't thought about what I would do now, but I do know that no. I've done done it long enough to embrace the madness. I yes, suppose. maybe. I see you've already got your bollocks out, and they're able to talk. Yeah, <laughs> I will sit and uh, spend an afternoon writing my repasts. To yeah, some, a great someday. list of them. Oh, fantastic. Neil, oh, I wish I'd seen that gig. <laughs> what a great time we've had talking to you. Thank you so much. It's really nice to meet you. And uh, and I, I love your stuff. I watch it on Instagram, watch it on, on YouTube. And I, I think you're a really, really funny man. So, um, Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you as well. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Neil Delamere. I'd urge you to search him out on tour before he starts playing massive venues and you can't get anywhere near him. And now, before you leave us and get on with your life, I'd be very grateful if you would rate this show and maybe even write a little review saying how much fun you've had. If you've had a shit time, ignore me. If you click subscribe, we'll make sure you get every episode as it's released, straight into your podcast app, to listen to at your convenience, of course. And if you follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, you'll be able to see what we're up to and who we have coming up. For the discerning musical listener amongst you, of which I'm sure there are many, you can download and listen to the theme tune to this podcast if you search for My Time Capsule Theme Tune. I'll say that again because it's complicated. My Time Capsule Theme Tune. Anyway, it's on Spotify. Where else? This production was made by Castoff Productions for the podcast distributor, Acast, and it was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to listen to Neil's podcast. Why would you tell me that? Well, I've heard all mine, so I might as well. 
It's good, you know, they discuss extraordinary facts, often with experts like Susie Dent. I like her. Although, so far, they haven't answered the vital questions as far as I'm concerned, like if Geronimo jumped out of a plane, what would he shout? And if people from Poland are called Poles, why aren't people from Holland called Holes? And, of course, the vital question, what do people in China call their best crockery? Hmm. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.